kid, I need some help And I can't begin to think of anything that could help But the weed is guaranteed indeed Just what I need How I feel upon a time So recent in time made me sad When I recollect how I used to be Like David and Goliath Kinda like me and the devil Trying to rip out my soul Trying to catch in the house sleep, no, no You can try again and I'll be ready Won't let you give me in my dream like Freddy Krueger No, I'm not no loser I'll see you
afternoon. Thank you for tuning in to Hot Dish Radio on Co-op 91.7 FM, Austin's Community Radio. I'm your host, Marion Parker. We're still pre-recording our shows at home, but hopefully we'll be back in the studio soon. To kickstart the show today, it's a song, Heart of a Lion by Kid Cuddy, a favorite of today's guest, Chef Damian Brockway of Distant Relatives, but also a great testament to his spirit. A skilled and talented chef who has held the realm of a few of Austin's best restaurants, who has shifted in 2020 to create and develop concepts that's true to his passion and his roots. Distant relatives will no doubt leave its mark on Austin's food scene, and I'm grateful to have Chef here today to share his vision. Chef, thank you so much for being here today. Hey, thanks for having us. For folks who aren't familiar with you and the concept, I thought we could talk a little bit about your career path. You could definitely say that my career is definitely chef nomad pattern that was really popular in the late 90s. Originally from northwestern Connecticut, a small town called Nutbuck. Started out as a dishwasher in 1998. Worked all throughout high school and just moved my way up from making salads to working the grill to finally saute and then being the sous chef at that restaurant. A really great chef there. She was a Culinary Institute of America grad. Saw my passion and saw the direction that I was heading. She felt a getting me into school with letters of recommendation and then engaging other chefs that had attended the school. And then that's where I actually ended up going uh, straight out of high school. So I went up to Hyde Park, New York, got my culinary degree, did a couple of internships down in the city working for free on the weekends, just trying to gain knowledge. From there, my other internship was up in Vermont in Manchester Center. I graduated, went back home for a little bit to save up some money. And then after that, I started working at the Olden and the Greens, uh, which is in Berkshire County, Massachusetts. The only reason why I mentioned this, W.E.B. Du Bois from there, and that's going to weave into the story later on. Moved to Austin, started out working with the High Hostility Group, Uchiko, the travels here in the city, most recently out at Just King Brewery, setting up their culinary program. And as you, 2020, decided to branch off and focus full-time on the, on this project that we're going to be diving into here. In 2018, the concept started as bitballing project between me and a, one of my cooks at that time. He's also an African-American, and we were talking about why don't we see more of these African flavor profiles in the food of African-Americans? Not saying that it doesn't exist, but you hear more about soul food, and then that's another sticky topic right there. Okay, so what's the history of soul food? Coin those terms during the civil rights movement highlight the contribution from African Americans. What if we start weaving these threads of African flavor profiles and weaving them with the things that we know to be distinctly African American? What if we started adding some of these techniques that we learned from these modern restaurants that we've been in and started applying that? What if we added layers of precision to it? That started in 2018, and then we had knocked around like, oh, it could be a trailer and work at a D or things of that nature. And then in 2020, as we all know, proverbial stuff hit the fan in terms of police brutality becoming a major issue all over again. Harking back to the early 90s, and we're talking about that again, talking with my family, this is happening again. It hasn't gone away. It's just gone underground. My mother was a big catalyst in this, and she's like, I had yep. my time. This is your time. I'm a chef. What I know how to do is to speak through food, so this is how I can participate and have a high level of confidence that I can do it. 
community forming campaign in August, and then in September started doing community-based pop-up. Kept on having people like yourself keeping the motivation for me there, as far away as Colorado and New York calling me and seeing what's happening on social media, and they're like, what is this, and don't stop. Started out with a very broad focus that we were looking at in terms of the food, and then we slowly narrowed it down through moves like getting DNA testing done, starting to look closer at genealogy, get a little more precision on the narrative, and then make it very concise and succinct. That way people could really see all these threads through an actual story of a person. What do you hope to accomplish by the narrative of distant relatives? You really want to understand like where your family came from. So let's talk a little bit about that. What do you want people to know when tasting your food? Nothing can mm-hmm. be tightly packaged and just put into a box. We can't just look at a whole entire group of people and say, oh, this is exactly who they are. This is what they represent. It's not as clean and, and as neat as that. And like my own background mm-hmm. is a testament to that. In terms of motivation, a little greater equity for African Americans in our food culture and in our food system. Great progress has been made over the last 10 years. There's tons of great literature out there. There's great articles. There's great history that people are uncovering. It's like cultural archaeology that's happening. Getting into the mainstream so that it's not so much of a niche thing. Now the Culinary Institute of America actually has an African-American culinary studies program. Mm-hmm. We're also talking about you know, the importance of African-American chefs over time. Some of the original professional chefs in our country, you know, Thomas Jefferson's personal chef and the first chef of the White House was trained in Britain. Do people know that? They should. Just highlighting that and then just trying to do it through a platform of culinary excellence and just keeping the conversation going and getting it uh, less segregated, more cross-pollination. Go to these places. See what they're serving. Talk to the people that work there just a little less isolation on that front would go a long way. This is part of American culture, you know what I mean, and just more equity on that front. You speak to something that that is my hope, and that's what I hope to see every aspect of our culinary scene to just be highlighted for that purpose, that it is part of the grain of our society. You mentioned that you did some DNA testing to truly understand your roots. What is the origin of your family? I'm going to be very clear. I'm multiracial. I guess you could classify me as both black and white. You call me uh, mulatto. That's what I am. White-skinned black person is is another term that you could use for me. Scottish, Irish, British, so Appalachian. The other side of my family was originally from Virginia. When we started looking at that side, I expected to see one, two countries in there. Then the DNA tests come back, the entire western seaboard of Africa is up. Maori, we have Nigeria, we have Cameroon, we have western Bantu peoples, we have everything going all the way down to South Africa. This is incredible. And they've been able to pinpoint these locations through haplogroups of people. One thing that we discovered about this is that they can actually isolate that to where these enslaved folks came into the state, pinpointed on the North Carolina to Virginia border. 
very hard thought aspect of it. When we started tying that into the food, it was like, okay, now we we got some direction here. We have these West African flavor profiles that we know. We know these spicing levels. We understand that. We see the dishes that we all know and love from this North Carolina, Virginia area. And then it's like it makes total sense that you have this intermingling with the Scotch-Irish. You know, it all starts coming together there. And then all of a sudden, there's like a picture. And you start looking at the fact that my family in Virginia were hard in peanut sharecroppers down there. My mother told me the stories about how they would go there and they had the smoke shack and they would sell the bacon at their roadside stand, the chitterlings, the peanut stew, the sweet potatoes, and all of this. And then everything just started really making a lot more sense in the direction that we're going here. And then we started researching the barbecue and the smoke aspect. We started reading about the history of barbecue in Virginia, which are strong proponents that say that American barbecue started in Virginia. I know that's going to tick a lot of people off, but there's a lot of documentation there. And then North Carolina coming in after that, and then we see the thread as it weaves through what they call the Black Belt of the South, and then we get into Texas. So we know Texas smoking barbecue is like a religion here. People take it very seriously. I take it very seriously. We're in central Texas. This is a huge part of what happens here. We know the meat market style barbecue that kind of spurned all the all the barbecue that we know in central Texas. And then it's interesting when you start looking at Austin and then you start looking at East Austin and you start looking at the style of barbecue that was made over on this side. If we're going explicitly like Virginia, North Carolina, yes, we're talking about hardwood so much smoking, and there's a lot of contention there. Are you smoking meat or are you barbecuing meat? Because barbecue to them means it has to be in a pit over coals, and the drippings create the smoke. When we're down in Texas, we start realizing now what we're talking about is more of a low temperature offset smoke done in either masonry pits or in the classic iconic Central Texas offset 5 propane tank type smoking. What we ended up was because in the mop. Where did this spicing profile come from? Peeling back the layers there, and then you're like, wow, this, these are West African flavor profiles. We're talking about mace. We're talking about chilies. We're talking about nutmeg. We're talking about all the different peppers, white pepper, black pepper, cupid, grains of paradise. Okay, this is starting to make a lot of sense. All of these kinds of things, your hard herbs, sage, rosemary, marjoram, all these kinds of things. With the Texas-style offset pepper, you can't really apply the mop in, in the same way, right? We realized that we had to figure out a different way of going about it. It's difficult to mop meat the way that they would. It's a completely different style of smoking and cooking. So we ended up finding out that our dry rubs would be where these flavors that you would find in a in a mop sauce and then utilizing the spritz, which is like a spray from a spray bottle that just generally moistens the outside, achieve the result that we were looking for. That's just like a technical thing because a mop is very wet, right? So if you put a lot of water on something and soak it, you have a lot of smoke traveling through the traps and starts getting pretty accurate and then starts covering up your flavor profiles that you were originally trying to highlight. That's one of the things that we do that's a little different. 
keeping those similar spice profiles and those flavors in there, but deploying a central Texas style of cooking them. So you're seeing things like fresh shoulder ham, while also doing belly in the style of bacon, utilizing a lot of sugar cane coming out of Louisiana, ribs, of course, things like that in terms of our protein. In terms of science, we're, we're following kind of that same thread and tracing these products back. We know these things. We know, we know our collards. We know our sweet potatoes. And then we're just reaching a little further back and then elevating and pushing up the seasoning and the spice profiles. And that's essentially the track there in terms of the sides and things like that and tying it to our place in terms of using uh, local agriculture is, is what we rely on. We have great partnerships with, with some really awesome farms around here that provide us with you know great products. That ties into the story because, as we know, there's a really great book it's called The Cooking Team by uh, Michael Twitty. He does a really, really eloquent job of just talking about farm to table is the most not new thing ever, right? We're not allowed much, but they were allowed to have their own gardens and provide their own produce for themselves if they weren't allowed an allotment from the fields that they work. That's always been part of the story is using your local food system and then cooking your cultural heritage and tying it that way. That's like the oldest but newest aspect. And as we know, I I love gardening. That's a passion of mine. That's kind of the tie-in. What else do we want to wrap that with, with the cuisine side of it? Let's talk about your location. Like, I am so excited. I can't <laughs> wait to try everything. Let's talk about that. So when are you planning on opening? Like, We're tying up the loose ends on the actual build-out of both the trailers. We filed for our permit, and we should be getting all of our papers in order within the next two weeks. After that, probably going to do a little soft opening and get the flow of service down. I'd say three weeks out. End of February? Is that a good time to be thinking of? Yes. End of uh, end of February is definitely the hard target right now. Everything's in motion. Things are falling together really nicely to hit that target. I don't have anything that a red flag saying that it, that'll go beyond oh. February. Well, I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Where is it actually located? The intersection of Airport and Mainer, 2204 Airport Boulevard. We're in the Rosewood neighborhood of the east side. Great location. And then are you thinking at some point you'll move from trailer to like a brick and mortar? That's the ultimate goal. People that are really close to this project, we're definitely spippling about that, but I can't go too far down that rabbit hole right now. Keep my eye on the prize, making sure that we open and we have everything in order. So at the current moment, this is the focus, but definitely the long-term plan is to get it into a brick and mortar. I will softball this out there. We had a really exciting idea yesterday of possibly a country store slash situation with a with a counter off on the side or in the back. There's some exciting ideas getting knocked around for that. And then hopefully we can find a conducive location because part of the project and why we're over here on the east side and why we're at this location right here, we, we know the development of the east side, which historically was a minority neighborhood. It's well documented that they actually called it a Negro sector when they relocated the African-American population during the Great Divide back in the 30s. That's why we're here, and we're on an undeveloped lot, but I'm sure at some point it is going to get developed. We full well know that. So part of the project is a little bit of a, a, little bit of a nod to that, 
that we can, mm-hmm. we can move around, uh, but we can represent the neighborhood and stand up for what was, modernizing, and still getting this food out here, feeding the people. I love it. Are you thinking you're probably going to do dinners, special events? Is that the feeling of the pop-up, is that still going to be something that you'll be doing as well as the trailer? Yes, I certainly hope so. There seems to be some good news coming out of Washington in terms of getting things under control so that we can start going back to a more of a normal mode of of doing pop-ups and events and dinners like that where we can have folks there and have some live interaction definitely something that we want to keep going. I think most folks out there love the pop-up in the separate clubs. been doing them ever since I moved here. So I definitely would not want to stop that because it's a great vehicle for collaboration. Mm-hmm. It's a great vehicle to go out and to reach people. You know, when it comes to distant relatives, maybe they don't know about it or maybe the concept just not for them, but then all of a sudden say they identify with their chef or this beverage producer and distant relatives is popping over them. Well, I'll give it a try and go there and then maybe they're gonna hear something that, that they and learn something that, that they didn't they didn't know before. Maybe maybe that'll kinda of turn corner. Maybe I'm gonna go over to the east side and check out some more of these places. That's why leading up to this we've gone out to Dripping Springs to collaborate with some folks out there at Revolution Spirits and serve some things that maybe they didn't know about or, or maybe they didn't know the story behind it. Maybe they didn't know anything about this project or what we're trying to do. So I think that those kinds of dinners are are very important for cross-pollination. Going back to the motivation, right, of kind of getting equality and equity for this kind of uh, cultural cuisine, I think that's going to be important. I think participation in these kinds of things is very important. And Joy and I uh, were talking yesterday. She's doing this amazing seminar program right now. She has such a power lineup speaking to these same things that we're talking about, food equality, food equity these sorts of things. We were just talking recently that once we get open, we have a partnership with her. That's who our, uh, our central processing uh, facility, our commissary, if you will. She's also an advisor for this project. Utilizing those resources over at the Cooksnick is, is definitely an avenue for us to engage with the community and then these educational and speaking events and things of that nature. So we're, we're blessed to have that connection with this project. Anyone that talks to you will get a wonderful understanding of the historical and cultural history and heritage of the cuisine. I can only imagine by people going to your pop-ups and your dinners and visiting your trailer that they'll have a better understanding of not just your food, but the history of food and and the importance of it, especially with, with change. And hopefully that by having this exposure will help people change their mindsets. I'm really excited about your concept. I really do feel that it's an important concept to happen in the Austin food scene right now. And you're the perfect person to help direct that dialogue. We're just so grateful to have you, Chef, on the show today. For folks who want to keep up with you and happenings, and I, I know like people like me who can't wait to, to come and eat your food, where can people learn more about what you're doing, the menu, how to keep track of you? We have an Instagram called at Distant Relatives ATX. Our website will be going up as soon as our permit comes through. It's built, but we want up-to-date information with everything in place for opening. That will be www.distantrelativesatx.com. Perfect. Opening hopefully by the end of February. Yes.
Okay, great. Seth, thank you, thank you, thank you for being on the show today. I feel very lucky to have you as a part of our food community, and I wish you the best of luck with Distant Relatives. It's going to be special. Thank you so much for having us. Uh, look forward to keeping the conversation going. Absolutely. What a treat having Chef Damian Brockway of Distant Relatives on the show today. I also wanted to note that starting this month, I will be putting together monthly lists of delicious ways that you can support local food businesses throughout Austin. This month, I'm going to be highlighting what restaurants, bars, and artisans are doing for Valentine's Day. You can learn more on our website at coop.org under the new section. I hope you check out a new spot or two or get something for your sweetheart. I'm going to be closing the show with a special request from Undercover Greg, Show Humphreys. Love you. I hope to see you back here on March 1st. We'll be talking Nowruz, the Persian New Year's. Stay safe out there.